Last week I purposely jumped um, over some verses so that I could address the context of this chapter in one session. We're going to break down today's life lesson into two passages, verses 9 to 11 and then verses 12 to 20. Now, 9 to 11 is a contested passage regarding homosexuality, and it's really a key passage that nobody can afford to go over lightly or ignore. Uh, There are difficulties in this passage, and it's also been misused and misunderstood over the years. Uh, There have been people who have been deeply hurt spiritually and emotionally by people using Scripture as a weapon, which is not my intent today. So I approach today with a lot of trepidation because I want to be able to present this accurately. And so today's subject was something I wanted to be able to present in our Theology of Sex series, and I actually wanted to make it a roundtable discussion because the context and the complexities of the context uh, is really about a difficult topic within our culture. But first, let me talk about my journey. I was raised in a context that homosexuality was wrong. My beliefs stood firmly, mostly because that's what I was told that I had to believe. As time had gone by, I had Christian friends whom I respected and began to make claims that uh, homosexuality and Christianity were congruent within certain biblical perspectives. And this had caused me to go down a quest for truth, so to speak. Now, aside from what our culture is preaching and teaching, what I have found in my world of Christendom is that the real questions that most Christians are asking is not about whether gay sex outside marriage is wrong or whether soliciting same-sex prostitute is wrong or sleeping around with uh, several partners is wrong because all genuine Christians believe that these are sin according to the biblical definition of sexual immorality. The real question is whether two men or two women can date, fall in love, remain sexually pure before their wedding date, commit to a lifelong consensual monogamous union as Christians that is blessed by God. The big question, does the Bible really address and prohibit these types of relations? And so I set out on a a, a study, a study Um, that hasn't been just a week, it's been years, to be honest. Because I do care about people, and I know that there are many stories out there of how people have been mistreated by the church for their sexual preference, and I have to say this, that's wrong. I stand on truth, and I stand on love, and sometimes figuring out how to stand on both is hard work. And some of you watching today, you affirm same-sex relations, while others of you who are watching do not. And what I'm hoping is that you will all put aside your assumptions and actually genuinely seek to know what the Bible is saying and not our traditions and not what our culture says about homosexuality. So today, I'm actually talking to you on both sides of the issue. Those of you who consider the Bible authoritative, In other words, if you're a Christian and you believe what the Bible is saying and is applicable to you and is true to you and is for you, that's who I am talking to. I am not addressing our culture. I am not addressing non-believers. But you, they are welcome to listen in. Now there is no such thing as an unbiased reading of the Bible. 
Because every time we open the word, we always bring our assumptions, we bring our own presuppositions to the text. But it is possible to give a text a fair reading that recognizes one's assumptions and invites others to engage in conversations and point those assumptions out. I've read, I've studied, I've listened to both sides. Those who identify as affirming and those who identify as non-affirming within the church. I believe that the Bible challenges people on both sides of the question. I too am still on a spiritual journey before God and before all of you. And I, I pray that I can give honor to my Lord and King who actually does have it all figured out. I think the church has often played an unintended yet active role in pushing gay people away from Jesus. And at times away from Jesus and literally into the grave. The ones who don't kill themselves end up leaving the church, but here's the thing. Most people who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told that same-sex behavior is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized, ridiculed, and treated like an other. And when you think about it, people will always gravitate to where they're loved. And if they don't find love in the church, they will go elsewhere. And so what if we have, what we have then are many people who are still hungry for the scriptures, but are turned off towards the church. So after researching, talking with people, listening to culture, analyzing my own beliefs and traditions, I had to ask myself, am I sure I got this one right? Because if the gospel is supposed to be good news and the church is the light that warns the world with this good news, then why are gay people leaving the church? You know, as we read about Jesus, we see all sorts of people, broken, sinful, marginalized, clean, unclean, pure, impure, they're all drawn to him. Some are befriended, some are confronted, but all of them are loved. So has the church handled the question of homosexuality with Christ-like love? Are we sure we've understood what the Bible really says about same-sex relations? And so when we begin to look at what the Bible says, there are usually two camps of thought. Now, there is either the affirming side, also called side A, the revisionist or progressive side, there's then the non-affirming side called side B, the traditional orthodox or, or historical view. Now, it's, what's interesting is I just gave you some labels. I need to say that words matter. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Words have the power to heal and the power to hurt. They have the power to give comfort and the power to kill. And we must be very careful with our words and how we use them. And so regardless of what side of the issue you fall on today, I think of all the terms I mentioned, and they all have problems. And in light of our subject today, the terms that I believe probably carry the least amount of baggage and misunderstanding to my mind, maybe not to yours, but at least to me, are revisionist and historical. And so to be clear, I'm going to be using the word historical to describe those who don't believe that God sanctions same-sex relations. 
And I'll use the word revisionist to describe those who do or who believe he does. Now this is a highly charged and emotional issue and I am not about to give quick, easy answers. This morning, we are going to need to work and think hard. We're going to need to think deeply and I will say that shallow answers to complex issues like this are offensive to all of our God-given minds and they fail to shape our hearts into being more like Jesus. And so the first thought that comes into our discussion is the topic of marriage. We've already addressed that in our Theology of Sex series, which is online, but some will say that marriage, the marriage passages themselves in Scripture don't directly address questions about homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And therefore, I want to jump straight into what is known as the clobber passages. And they're called the clobber passages because Christians throughout history have used these to clobber gay people. And when gay people hear these verses quoted, they immediately think of hate and not love. They think of abuse and not embrace. Ignorance and not understanding. Being called names and given labels and not seen as the image bearers of Christ. And we must be sensitive to the painful misuse of this text and these texts before we even try to interpret them. Because after all, we're not just studying a text. We're not just talking about an issue. We're trying to love real people with real pain. Now, according to revisionist Matthew Vine, there are only six passages of Scripture that mention same-sex intercourse. Genesis 19, 1-9, Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, 13, Romans 1, 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, our topic, or our context, and 1 Timothy 1.10. I would argue that there are much more that formulate a biblical worldview of, of sexuality, but for time's sake, we're just going to focus on these. Genesis 19, 1-9, this is the story of Sodom. In a nutshell, Sodom was not fried because of gay pride. They were fried for many other sins including the sin of gang rape. Now, in fact, whenever the Old Testament mentions Sodom, now this is the Old Testament, the homosexual sin is never mentioned. In fact, Ezekiel 1649 says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. That sounds like our country, does it not? Isaiah 1, Isaiah 3, Jeremiah 23, they all mention Sodom, but they never give the slightest hint of anything related to same-sex relations. Now, if you go to Leviticus, we have two more verses, 18.22, 20.13, and as we read these verses, we're actually faced with some questions. And one of the questions is, do these verses prohibit all forms of homosexual acts or just certain exploitive forms of it? That is, do these prohibitions apply to consensual, monogamous, loving gay couples? Also, do these verses still carry authority for Christians today? That's an important one. Now, some argue that these two verses are only talking about certain types of exploited sex, such as rape or prostitution or a heterosexual man forcing himself on a young boy known as 
of pederasty. And, and certainly without question, all those acts are wrong. But the question is, are these two verses to be limited to these particular forms of same-sex intercourse? Now, some people look at this and they write these commands uh, off since uh, there are a whole lot of weird laws in Leviticus that nobody follows anymore, correct? So revisionists will say that historical Christians will pick and choose only specific verses. For example, you know, let's be honest, few Christians obey the laws about not eating shellfish, right? Or what type of seed to plant or materials that we put on our bodies. And so therefore, the argument is whatever it says about gay sex shouldn't be followed either. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite because all you're doing is picking and choosing. But when you study the passages in the context, you realize that the question is not so easily answered. See, we use this thing called hermeneutics to interpret the Bible. And we use hermeneutics for, and I want to say this very carefully, picking and choosing. See, what Hermeneutics tells us is that there are three different types of law in the Old Testament. There's what is known as the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law, which is really based on the Ten Commandments, is, is that law that transcends cultures, time, or it transcends all uh, time and culture. There are those things that are true for all people in all places at all time. The civil law was the law that God gave the Jewish people to function as a culture then and there. Those things can't be transferred from that culture to our own. And finally, there's what is known as ceremonial laws, which taught Israel how to worship. And they too are non-transferable. We couldn't do the laws that relate to the temple even if we wanted to today. And also, as Christians, Jesus filled all the ceremonial law as our once and for all sacrifice of sin, the just for the unjust, in order that he would bring us back to God. So the ceremonial law is fulfilled already in Jesus. May I suggest to you that both the historical side and the revisionist side picks and chooses. May I suggest that there are many commands in Leviticus that even both Christians and non-Christians obey. Though some laws are fulfilled in Jesus, like I said, there's no need for animal sacrifices. The food laws are no longer binding on Christians, as the New Testament makes that very clear in Acts chapter 10 and in Romans chapter 14. But we still need to read Leviticus chapters 18 to 20 as one literary unit. That's how we have to approach it. That's the hermeneutic behind it. It's no different than reading Genesis 1 and 2 together. It's no different than reading Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You read it together. And so Leviticus begins to deal with a whole string of commands that deal with various social issues in the life of Israel. And a careful reading tells us that almost every moral given law to Israel is still relevant for Christians today. For instance, when we begin to look through those Chapters, we see that incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, and turning to witches or necromancers. There are many moral laws that we still practice today. So in other words... We all pick and choose. 
There are a few laws in Leviticus that aren't binding in their specificity, but they still contain a core principle that is relevant for us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> Leviticus 19 says, Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You're going, well, is that binding? Well, yes and no. See, the principle of taking care of the poor is certainly relevant. But that particular application in which we're reading it may not be. And so what happens is one of the most fail-proof tests to see if an Old Testament law is still valid for Christians is if it's repeated in the New Testament. Cheating, stealing, lying, yeah, it's all repeated. Adultery, murder, drunkenness, yep, it's all repeated there. What about eating pork? New Testament says Christians don't need to obey this law. Same goes for animal sacrifices. So we, we do, when we approach the scriptures, we need to ask the question, does the New Testament also say that regarding same-sex intercourse, and is it okay since Jesus has arrived on the scene? The three other passages in the clobber passages of Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy, for the sake of time and context, I'm simply, simply going to focus on 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And before I go there, let's remember that we're talking about people, not just the text. We can never leave that important truth behind. So Paul writes, the very fact that you have lost it among you means that you have completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And as you're reading this passage, there's obviously a lot of questions that come up because maybe you're seeing yourself in this passage, at least on some level. Because what Paul is doing is he's actually leveling the playing field here. And all of us should be seeing part of our own humanity here in this passage being identified as we're reading it. You should be seeing yourself in this passage. And if you don't, you need to. Let me get two things out of the way. This passage is not talking about Christians who struggle with sin. If you struggle with sexual immorality, if you struggle with adultery, if you struggle with idolatry, and you're submitting and you're in this process of submitting yourself to Jesus, and, and maybe you're failing, maybe you failed, maybe you stumbled, but you're coming to God and you're repenting and you know the struggle is real, this passage is not saying that that person it will not inherit the kingdom of God. This passage is also not talking about people who have opposite sex uh, attractional feelings. Having opposite sex attractional feelings is not sinful. Paul is not talking about Christians who are on an imperfect journey towards a perfect Savior. As a matter of fact, it is precisely those people who will inherit the kingdom of God. 
those of us on an imperfect journey towards a perfect Savior. This passage about people who identify, who are actually identified by their sin and who willfully and purposefully are engaging in ongoing, unrepentant sin and are not committed to Christ. So where are you in this passage? Remember, it was Jesus who said, if anybody lusts after a woman, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Or maybe... Maybe you think you don't struggle with idolatry. You know, you're not tempted to bow down to an idol or Buddha, especially maybe if you go into a local restaurant or something along that lines and you see something in the corner. But let me just say this to you. Paul says in Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Ezekiel 14 talks about the idols in our heart. Setting things in our life above Jesus Christ is idolatry. Maybe you don't struggle with stealing things. You're not a thief. Do you steal time from your employer? Ooh, do you steal money from the government? Okay, you can say amen or ouch at any point in time. If you have a social media account, be it Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you already struggle with slander? Right? Let's rest on that one. Think about it. And I realize that in a church our size, there are many people who have struggles and perhaps experienced or, or have a set of experience, and they all vary. And what Paul does in this passage is that he's, he's leveling the playing field. So we need to begin to approach this passage as beggars in need of God's grace. This passage has the potential to stir up hypocrisy because all of us are prone to vilify the sins that we struggle with the least. And historically, when it was read, men who have sex with men, the majority of people didn't have this personal struggle, experience, or identity in their lives or in their past. And it can become really easy if you have uh, one of the other things in your life and you can say, you oh, know, I can't believe that those, somebody would struggle with that. And so we need to make sure that we do not vilify the sins that we struggle with the least. In the past, some Christians have gone to this passage, they've singled out one sin and they ignored the rest. Please, can we stop just singling out one sin and ignoring all the others? In the past, some Christians have often treated homosexuals far more abusively than they have other sinners. There is real discrimination against the gay community that must be fought. Remember Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do right and seek justice. Defend the oppressed. James 2.1 is clear that believers should not show favoritism. And this applies to all people, regardless of their skin color or sexual preference. See, the world holds that the Christian view of sex, it holds that uh, our view of sex in contempt. The world looks at the church, it says you're prudish, you're naive. Actually, the church is even repressive. Our culture looks at the church and says that we're backwards, and so it's not surprising that in this time of growing biblical illiteracy, 
So few people have any idea of what God thinks and says about the subject of sexuality. You know, Christians believe that there is a right, as, a right and wrong as well as certain boundaries, especially in how we handle our sexuality. And the Bible actually elevates sexuality as God's gift to us that is both sacred and mysterious as long as it's played out within God's design. I don't know if you remember, I've used it before. It's called the pickle principle. In order to make pickles, we put cucumbers in a brine solution of vinegar and spices and water. And after that cucumber soaks long enough, it's changed into a pickle. Most of us are pickles. So we sit in the brine of our sex-saturated culture. And what we do is we absorb its values and beliefs and it begins to change the way we think. I would go so far as to say that most Christians are pickled today. Believing and acting exactly like everybody else who has been sitting in the brine of culture that is hostile to God and the scriptures. Our culture includes the belief that sex is the ultimate pleasure. That sex is God. The message of our media is that there is no greater pleasure available than that almighty orgasm. And that's the right of every individual to have this pleasure. And culture has, has moved unabashedly towards the mockery of the Christian worldview. Eastern religions are protected in today's society because to critique Eastern religions is seen as culturally insensitive and prejudicial. And yet Christianity finds its roots in the East. Another aspect of this culture is that no one has the right to deprive anybody else of this greatest of all human pleasures. And also that nobody has the right to tell anybody else what is right or wrong, especially about the expression of his or her sexuality. I hope you're tracking with me this morning. The media is the defender of the sexual freedom. It's the force behind the, the sway of popular opinion. And what has happened now is word games have entered into our vocabulary. The media holds relativist convictions, which are supposedly prejudicial free. And while the church is pictured not as something which holds absolute convictions, it's now branded with all types of phobias. And so any questioning of sexual freedom is castigated now as a phobia. And so the church is labeled with many derogatory terms, such as homophobic, Islamophobic, and other things. And finally, emotions are perhaps the most popular basis for making choices today, our emotions. Like, it, how can you argue with anybody about how they feel. You can't. And so if feelings are actually now a good standard for decision making, then you'll never have to come up with a better defense than I did it because I felt like it. Well, that philosophy doesn't take a whole lot of what-if scenarios to realize that there are major problems with that type of approach to decision making. But that's our world. And so we as Christians are trying to deal with the social issues of our time and we have to respond to people who accuse the church of being hateful and repressive. The problem is there's a logical problem in our culture. In that our culture champions the word tolerance. But actually doesn't practice it, especially when it comes to Christianity. We also live in a, what is known as an autonomous culture where you, the individual, are basically you're a law unto yourself. You know, it's, it's I'm, I'm living according to myself. 
It's me that matters. But in an autonomous culture, one has to allow people to voice their opinions even if they disagree with you or even if you think they're wrong. We have to have that kind of freedom. But unfortunately, these rules do not apply equally, especially to Christians. And what we're finding is is that as, as soon as people disagree with your answer, with your belief or system, we find ourselves engaging in outrage culture and cancel culture and the kindergarten aspect of name calling. And this finds itself even in the church. When a pastor gets up and makes a statement or takes a stand on an issue, some Christians get so bent out of shape and they stand up and they, I don't agree with this, I'm leaving. And of course, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, there have been times where people looked into my face, literally looked into my eyes and said, I don't agree with everything you teach or do. Really? That's a shock to my system. I hope you're reading my sarcasmic hug. You know, I'm sorry. I think everybody agrees with me. Like, oh my goodness, people. Newsflash. I don't agree with everything you say, you do, or you believe either. Really? But you don't see me running away or putting out a barrier in the parking lot to tell our crew outside, don't let them in. They think differently from me. Or they're interpreting the Bible in a liberal way. They don't belong here. No. No, listen, everyone is welcome to soul. This is the part of iron sharpening iron. Getting to the scriptures. Come, learn, be challenged. Take me to task scripturally. Don't swallow everything I present to you blindly. This is not a cult. Some might say it is, but it's not. But let's get hungry. Let's study the word together. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us so that as we look at this and many other passages, let us remember it's all about people, real people, real stories, people we have in our lives where this is their story. And so we need to learn as a community, as a church, how to navigate these relationships. Or maybe it's your story. 1 Corinthians 6.9 is one of the most disputed, divisive passages in the Bible. And as we come to this passage, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Christian. You you can't read this text through the lens of 21st century Western secular culture and context. You can't. That's the problem today. And so in most people's minds, when they talk about marriage, they, they, they understand marriage here in the 21st century as a union between two consenting adults. Two adults fall in love, they commit to each other, and those, that, uh, the, and those two that can get married, you know, they, they will as long as they're not harming anybody, anything goes, right? That's our cultural perspective. But that's not how any Jew or first century Christian would have defined marriage. In the context of the first century Jewish slash Christian context, they would define marriage, that union, between two sexually different people. So that sex difference is precisely what marriage is. Matthew 19, Jesus reinforces reinforces this um, when he says that in the beginning the creator made them male and female, and for this reason the two will become one flesh. And so what we need to notice is that 
the two adults become one flesh. They're not just two humans or two consenting adults. According to first century understanding, they are precisely male and female. So in the first century context, when they said the word marriage, they meant the coming together of two sexually different people. Now some feel that the whole idea of same-sex marriage would have been incomprehensible back then. In my study, honestly, there have been a few recorded cases where uh, people in the culture were committed to each other in, in same-sex relationships. It, it's, this is not new. But culturally, marriage met, meant sexual differences coming together. That was the lens in the first century Christian, and that's how they would have approached this letter. So when we come to this passage, the phrase that we see in the NIV translated as men who have sex with men is actually only one of many ways that this verse is translated. The key is how you translate two simple Greek words, malakoi and arsenokoitis. Now, interesting, the revisionist scholars argue that these words are just too ambiguous and that their meanings are just simply unknown. Or they'll say that these two words um, refer to exploitive sex, uh, such as prostitution or (laughs) pederasty. Or in one case, actually, one one person said it's some some kind of uh, economic exploitation. The word malachi, malachoi, means soft or delicate. It's the same word that we read in Matthew 11, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 8, to describe soft clothing. That word actually has a very broad meaning, but here in Corinthians, the word is being used to describe a certain type of person in the context uh, with some sort of action attached. And so the context determines the meaning of the word, especially when we're translating Scripture. However, Paul never uses this word in any of his other writings, so we can't really cross-check Paul's references. But, but we have to understand that the Greek context to which Paul is writing in order to understand the word itself. And while that word itself means soft, it's also used to describe men who looked and acted like women historically with some who would have been castrated or played the passive role in sexual intercourse with other men. This view on this word was held by Hellenist thinkers like uh, uh, Philo and Lucan and Phaedrus and others. So when this word is used, not every person accused of being a melakoi necessarily engaged in sex with men, but every man who played the passive role in a a same-sex intercourse would be labeled with this. So this word kind of stands alone in this passage. And all I can say is that it refers, in the Roman sense, really to a man trying to be a woman. Now, whether or not this sense includes some sort of sexual sin depends partly on the meaning of the next word that comes alongside it, arsinokoites. And this is where the real debate begins. The word arsinokoites never occurs in all of Greek literature prior to Paul mentioning it here. And if you know anything about ancient literature, we have piles that there are people who make their joy in life going through each and every little letter and word of Greek literature. And when we come to Paul and what Paul is writing here in the Greek, they will point it out that this is the first time that we've ever seen this word. And this is one of the reasons why people will say that we don't know what this word means. 
Revisionist scholars will argue that these words are just too ambiguous, that their meanings are simply unknown, or when they do try an attempt at interpreting, they'll usually say it refers to exploitive sex um, or pederasty or prostitution. Now, if we dig into the word, I, I think that the meaning is not as difficult as some people made it out to be. That word arsenokoites is a compound word made up of two Greek words that are very well known. Arsen, which means, uh, and koites. Arsen is the common word for male. It refers to the male gender, irrespective of age. And uh, koites literally means bed and is often used in the context of a metaphorical lying with or to sleep with in a sexual sense. All right? When you bed somebody. Other compound words that have that word koite in them carry an explicit, explicit sexual meaning. For example, doulos koites. It's formed by the word doulos, which means slave, and koites, which means bed, and it means one who sleeps with slaves. Metrokoites comes from the word meter, which is mother, and again, koite, and it means the one who sleeps with his mother. Now, therefore, if we add up the meaning of two parts of a compound word, this word arsenokoites, it refers to someone who sleeps with other males. And I say this with caution because we still have to be careful when determining the meaning of a compound word. It's not just based on its individual parts. We can't just look at it that way. We, we need to look at other pieces of evidence. Now, the early church had a Bible. It was the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament Scriptures. They were translated, now in Greek culture, they were translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, and it was called the Septuagint. When Paul writes his letters in Greek, he is quoting the Greek Bible, just as he would quote the translation that we would use today. And what is interesting is when you go back to Leviticus in the Septuagint, it just so happens that these two words that we're talking about make up this compound word, uh, they actually occur side by side in Leviticus 20, 13, and pretty close together in Leviticus 18, 22. And we already pointed out that these two passages prohibit male uh, same-sex sexual relationships, and most scholars will suggest that uh, Malakoi and Arsinokoites being so close together in placement refers to the active and passive partners in a same-sex relationship. And so it appears that Paul is going back. It appears that Paul is going back to Leviticus. He's drawing from that text to create this word. And just because it appears for the first time in its compound form in the New Testament doesn't mean that its meaning is incomprehensible. Now again, Leviticus and 1 Corinthians are not talking about people's who, uh, or people who experience, whose experience is being attracted to the same sex. They have the feelings, they have the desires, they're just not acting on it. And I think that's so important to understand. Leviticus isn't talking about gay people per se. Just because somebody experiences same-sex attraction, that's not a sin. I said that earlier. It's no different than those who experience opposite-sex attraction. Feelings may be there, they may be real. It's, it's whether we submit ourselves to Jesus and go from there. Leviticus isn't also talking about male cult prostitutes or just exploitation or males raping their male slaves. 
When you look at Leviticus, it's categorically saying that God doesn't intend for men to lie sexually with other men. Now, I'm pretty sure that many of you didn't expect this type of message today on Father's Day. And for me, I've struggled because this has probably raised many more questions regarding the church and the culture and other issues that I haven't addressed, like orientation. I personally wanted to be able to present this, like I said, concluding our Theology of Sex series with an intimate teaching with dialogue. And I think that that's actually still possible, but we have to wait for the COVID restrictions to loosen up. So let's continue to move on. Paul continues to write, and he says this. Listen carefully. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right uh, to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Well, never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? And it's said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. I have the right to do anything, or another translation says, everything is permissible for me. This was a common view amongst Stoic philosophers of the time, and Paul is either quoting them or possibly quoting false teachers or maybe false teachers taking something out of context that Paul has already preached. We're not quite sure. And it wasn't what they said that wasn't true, but that they took the truth beyond legitimate bounds. And so perhaps they had applied it to Paul's own teaching on Christian freedom with regard to eating foods and then twisted it to uh, allow sex with prostitutes, Paul's reply is, look, not everything is beneficial. And I think that that's critical to us. Just because you have the authority, just because you have the ability, the freedom to do something doesn't mean that it will help you. And Paul isn't saying that, that they have the authority to sin. You can go out and do this. He's just helping them think through their logic on their own value system. And so biblical truth is often presented in a tension-filled paradox. And that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's second reply to the initial statement was, you know, we should not be mastered by anything. When you think about it, it's not hard for us to think of things that overwhelm or dominate anybody's life, maybe even your life, and some of it is obvious. Drinking to excess, doing drugs, right? But even good things can actually take over our lives. Overeating, sexual compulsions, prescription painkillers or others, just because it's legal doesn't make it beneficial to you. And so Paul has no problem with the saying, I can do everything, but he controls his freedom so that the gospel will prosper. Even self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. Paul is asserting that Christian freedom should not be an opportunity for personal license. Many things that are good can come from improper motives, attitudes, or situations. Listen, this issue of Christian freedom and Christian responsibility is a critical issue in this letter, and we'll get to it. Paul quotes another saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, which means that they were thinking that the stomach and, and the rest of the body weren't really connected to one's spirituality. You know, we talked about this in our Theology of Sex series. So what you did with your body doesn't really affect your spirituality. And so they could go out, they could justify having sex with prostitutes. 
And that phrase, you know, that God will destroy them both represents what the Corinthians actually thought, that food and sex just have to do with the physical and the physical ultimately will just come to an end. Paul goes on to argue, you can't separate our bodies from our spirit. Our bodies are designed to serve God. Our bodies are not designed just for menial, the physical, and all of which is essentially irrelevant and will pass away. Our purpose here on earth is to serve the Lord with our body, and what we do with our body actually matters both inside and out. And and he is clear here that sexual immorality, all sex outside the bonds of marriage, is contrary to our purpose here on earth. And Paul also adds that our bodies will survive this life through the resurrection, a bodily resurrection. The Corinthians were wrong about the body being destroyed because many of them denied the resurrection of the body. Paul takes most of chapter 15 to present an argument to support the resurrection of the body. We'll eventually get there. But finally, our bodies are members of Christ. That is physical extensions of Christ here on earth to do his will. Paul will develop this argument about us being the body of Christ in chapter 12 as he discusses also spiritual gifts. Again, we'll get there. But now the practical. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. That word flee is a strong verb. Here he uses it figuratively to keep from doing something by avoiding it because of its potential damage, right? So we're not to toy with sexual immorality. This isn't a game. Sexual immorality is is potentially a game ender, really. It's serious. And Paul concludes this section with the words to help his readers reflect on the seriousness of sexual sins. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So Paul finishes with a few points to help the Corinthians resist sexual temptations that actually was an integral part of their culture. The fact is, sexual sin involves our core person in a different way than other sins. You might object to Paul's statement, all other sins a man commit are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Because we could look at stuff like gluttony and drunkenness are, are sins against the body, are they not? And I'm pretty sure Paul is obviously aware of this. But Paul actually wants us to see that sexual sins are somehow unique. And Paul's point is that sexual sin is uniquely harmful to your person and your relationship with Christ. Because Paul reminds us, look at the Holy Spirit lives within you. And so making your body, uh, 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 again, he has encouraged us to make our body like a temple that must not be defiled. And now this is a little bit different from what we already looked at in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which refers to the temple Uh, the church as a temple of the Holy Spirit, now he personalizes it. And so in both passages, Paul underscores the sanctity of the temple. Finally, Paul says, look at you belong to God, not yourself. For you know, as 1 Peter says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed for them, the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We owe. 
Paul uses the word we are a slave, a slave to Christ. We are purchased, we are redeemed at a great cost by the blood of Jesus. And again, Paul will refer that we are slaves to Christ in chapter seven, but Paul is clear that the believer's bodies belong to the Lord and we are to use our bodies for his service and his purposes. It's been a long one, but here are my final thoughts today. Historic Christianity attests that sexuality is sacred, but our culture has desacralized sexuality. And desacralization is an emptiness of essential purpose and meaning, and it really leads to the loss of essential purpose in life itself. This is why it's really empty to say that, well, if two people love each other, they can express it in any way they choose. You know, that's like Beatles theology. All we need is love. I'm more inclined to think of a Tina Turner theology of what does love got to do with it. Because love is not defined in our way. Love is defined in a way, uh, and again, it's not defined in a way that is a feeling or self-referencing, but ultimately, as believers, it hangs on the peg of God's love and how he defines love. Now, some Christian revisionists have sought to convince people that historically or orthodox have misinterpreted the scriptures and that a command that, that a committed same-sex relationship is not condemned in Scripture. Frankly, I don't think they make their case, and here's why. When scholars, revisionist scholars, specifically William Loder, a prominent expert on ancient biblical views, listen to what I'm saying, a prominent expert on ancient biblical views of sexuality, having written five large and two small volumes in his lifetime, some of which are in my office. It's worth noting that Loder himself actually acknowledges, hear me carefully, that the Old and New Testament texts uniformly oppose homosexuality and even argues that scripture is quite clear and unified on the point that same-sex acts are sinful. But he then argues that we should not follow Scripture on this point because he personally does not see anything wrong with homosexual relationships. He just proves that you can't get the Bible itself to say something it doesn't say. Another scholar, Megan DeFranza, basically says that all biblical texts are speaking about something else and not homosexuality. Finally, Luke Timothy Johnson wrote this. I'd like you to read along with me. He said this. The task task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural sub... sub, 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 My English is not good this morning. Subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? I think, he continues to write, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us 
that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. And so by doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premises of scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption, and disobedience to God's created order. In spite of any, the lack of any scientific evidence, the belief persists in our culture that people are born gay and that just makes it okay. And yet for Christians, innateness doesn't mean that something is permissible. Being born a sinner doesn't make sin right. We have to point people to a far more important claim. And so regardless of you know, regardless of what was true or not true when you were born, Jesus says that you have to be born again. It doesn't matter whether you think you were born an alcoholic, you must be born again. It doesn't matter whether you think you were born a liar, you got to be born again. It doesn't matter if you th- think you were born a porn addict, you have to be born again. It doesn't matter if you think you were born with any other sexual struggle, you must be born again. And where do we get that from? Well, we get it from the scriptures, right? So where do you land on biblical authority? That's my question this morning. And before you answer, before you answer any other question on any other topic, have you come to terms, and I think you have to come to terms, on how to handle the text in front of you? How do you... You have to come to terms with how you will decide to live out the scriptures. I mentioned last week that life transformation is Christianity 101. The changed lives of these converted pagans were a powerful witness to the gospel in Corinth. But the change had to be permanent and complete, not temporary and selective. And they were different now. They were indwelt now. They were informed now. And the lost world was watching them. So here's the hard part, probably one of the hardest messages I've ever had to share. Christians have no more or less of a right to tell other people how to live their lives than anybody else. But we all have ways we think the world should be. And we all have the right to try to contend for those views respectively. I accept all people with love and genuineness regardless of what their view is on anything, even if it's different than mine. And yes, I can literally put my arm around a person who has a different view of marriage or a different view of sexual expression or a different view of politics, God forbid. But I'll tell you this. God gives us the most sacred gift in the prerogative of choice. But God will not give us the privilege of determining a different outcome to what that choice will entail. And the consequences are bound to our choice. And so when I look at the departure from the biblical mandate, where many of our religious, uh, revisionist theologians said, the text is saying what the text says, but we don't need to believe it anymore. Having said that, Having said all of that, having said everything I've said today, and I'm positive I've stirred a hornet's nest, let me say this. The Bible commands us to love, 
and we, the church, must show love and tenderness towards people who don't have a sexual desire for the opposite sex. We have no right to act hatefully and arrogantly towards this particular sin, especially when it's obvious that all of us sin. And so prayer, concern, compassion do so much better in this area than condemnation. And for many, sexual identity is a huge issue, huge struggle, whatever you want to call it. But the Bible commands us as believers to love even those who we disagree with. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our responsibility as the church is to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed. And this applies to all people, regardless, as I said earlier, of skin color, sexual preference, or religion. Our privilege as believers is to love. And only God can change the heart of a person. And God is the ultimate judge. And we live in a pluralistic society. And let us as Christians be salt and light and learn to love one another and live together. And let us let God be the judge. Soul Sanctuary. May God be beside you when you walk. May God be in your voice when you talk. May God be in your eyes when you see. May God be in your ears when you, when you hear. May God be in your heart when you pray. May God be in your mind when you think. And may God be in your hands when you touch, even during COVID. So in every sense, may it be that God is with you eternally. And may you make a difference in this world in which he has placed you. So now go and live the church.